My first question is, is Tom Cruise as short as I think he is? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Good friendly. to know. It's not a really nice guy. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I guess every, it all comes around. Everybody's, everybody's short. Jeff Goldblum is the only guy who's really tall. So Really? Everybody oh, else, yeah, so. everybody else is very small. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Joining us today is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club, a notable podcast and newsletter brand and space where CEOs, founders, investors, scientists, and therapists from the new psychedelic ecosystem and business can talk about the disruptive power of psychedelics, about new markets, compounds, and psychedelic medicine. She is working on bringing the new health club to the next level soon, and we're excited to see what that means. And thank you so much for joining us today. Are you ready to go field tripping? I so I'm really ready to go field tripping, Ronan. Nice to see you this evening or afternoon. Nice to see you as well. Calling in from the Soho (laughs) house in London, England. Very fancy of you. Exactly. I've, I don't think I've ever been in a Soho house, and I may actually take that as a point of pride. Have you been a member for a long time? Yeah, like since 20, oh, um, I think 10. And uh, this is when the house in Berlin opened and also the one in Los Angeles. So I got a every house membership. There's actually one in Toronto, so you can go right after the conversation. It's literally around the corner from us. Um, and much like my brother who worked in the cannabis industry for about four or five years but has never used cannabis i am glad to say that i am in direct proximity to soho house and i can say i've never been in one. actually that's not true i may have been in one um when i was in austin but that's not why we're here today uh here today to talk about baseball no i'm just kidding for those <laughs> listeners uh before we started and was saying she likes unexpected questions so baseball seemed like a good unexpected question although in a very positive note i just read the other day we're 60 days away from opening day which i could care less about because i'm not really a baseball fan but it does mean that spring isn't too far away and that gives me hope so on that note and you were i think the first person to interview me in the psychedelics space um maybe the second and i remember doing the interview from my ping pong table in my basement because it was the very early days uh, of the pandemic and uh, i appreciated your inquisitive nature and thank you for reaching out now my first question to you because i think it's important for everybody how does a journalist a successful journalist with a very broad career uh dedicate her life to psychedelics what what was the inspiration how did you get on this path and yeah how's it going in that respect i would say that i mean i spent many years in california as a hollywood reporter and for some reason i thought this would be something that i would do forever or like at least eventually also get into the screenwriting um TV show business, which I was already looking into. But then actually, I would say my personal story got in a way in terms that I felt like more and more, there are really things that are not resolved in in me. And I just, as a lot of people that get into psychedelics, I couldn't really tell what it is, but I felt it became stronger and stronger. And um, so there's this great, uh, since we're talking about Hollywood, from quote from Drew Barrymore, it's like, guess who's getting off that plane in China? <laughs> so it's still the person <laughs> that you are, even if you go to China. So, um, and at one point, this is exactly what happened to me. I was like, I can have five Tom Cruise or George Clooney interviews a week, but it will not actually tell me what's really going on with me. And then many things have happened, like the whole reporting and, and especially celebrity reporting became kind of. I would say a little bit obsolete because of social media. So I went back to Berlin from California and for a year I was really, or maybe two years, I was really clueless what would be the next step because I also did not want to go back to journalism. And then I realized that still, the reason was still because there was something in me that I couldn't really figure out. And I think I've done 15 years of talk therapy and then coming back to Berlin, I started the next therapy. 
And I was like, this time, this time I find this super therapist. And you know what's, what's really funny is I picked the therapist, a woman, because she reminded me of Asia Argento. And I was like, something is wrong with me. I just really have to get rid of this kind of, I mean, it sounds like Hollywood narrative in a way. She was the total wrong therapist for me. So I realized, no, it's not going to work for me anymore. So because I kept telling the same story since basically 15 years. And then I just really randomly met through friends, a person who, who gave me this Michael Pollan book. And uh, I had heard at that point of uh, microdosing, and, but I mean, not really like getting, like getting into it. And then I started to read Michael Pollan and I read the part where he wrote about LSD. And that was it. So I was like, I want to have exactly this experience that that guy had. So, and because the way he was writing about it, also because he said like he was 60 when he started this and he was like, I was stuck in my ways. I didn't know what to do. And I was like, well, this is, this is exactly how I feel, but I still don't know why I feel that way. So then I found a psychiatrist in Germany where it's not legal, of course, to do a second, like a, an LSD experience, but it was a established psychiatrist though. And um, then I went on really my first psychedelic experience whatsoever in Saturday morning where other people go shopping. So at 10 o'clock, <laughs> I went there and took the LSD and I had a really interesting experience, not very emotional, but very interesting, like tons of information. Then I just started, wrote the first story actually for a very established German newspaper like Frankfurt Allgemeine about this. And please um, don't ask me then, to repeat the name of the journalism. No, 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 you that, don't have that to. Media. <laughs> let's say, let's say it's the New York Times of Germany. Okay, New York <laughs> so Times of Germany, something okay. like that. So and um, and then afterwards, I felt like I just um, I got more and more into it. I just you know how it is, you start to meet more people suddenly who are doing this, or who, which are not that many at that time, like 2018-ish. But then something in me had really started to shift, but like slowly, not like coming out of the experience and then your life is changing. And then I had met a couple of investors who helped me to launch the podcast because they knew me as a journalist. And then in 2020, shortly before the pandemic, I went to Synthesis to do the first also first psilocybin trip ever and afterwards that was it i was just ready to go i had money in a bank to do the podcast <laughs> i couldn't leave my house like nobody else so and i just did podcast and that was it so but but the, the underlying topic is really that i felt that my personal journey was just also the beginning to really find out what what i was looking into and so i kind of used my personal journey to to drive the business also in a way. Thank you for sharing that. My first question is, is Tom Cruise as short as I think he is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, okay, good friendly. to know. It's not a really nice guy. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I guess every, it all comes around. Everybody is, everybody's short. Jeff Goldblum is the only guy who's really tall. So Really? Everybody oh, else, yeah, so. everybody else is very small. Maybe I should have been a Hollywood actor. I clearly missed my calling. You still um, can do it. <laughs> it's true. It's never too late. Um, can I ask, maybe not in the LSD experience or maybe in the psilocybin experience, but did you help? Did you start to get the answer of what was missing? I mean, I can see how the bright lights and glamour and money and all that kind of stuff around Hollywood can be very intoxicating. And then when you get there, it can probably leave a very bad taste in your mouth because it's a whole bunch of show and not a lot of substance. That's exactly what it is. But what did these experiences reveal to you about the disconnect that was happening that caused you to leave Hollywood and, and go back to Germany? But I mean, I think like, let's say the, on, on, on the surface, it was like around 2013, 14, a lot of European, let's say, journalists who have been in LA for a while, um, they really had to face the changing industry that you could not make money anymore with this as a journalist, as a correspondent. So, so this was the, on the surface, what was happening. So like rationally, you should have said, okay, this is nothing that you should invest in with your future. But one thing I realized 
why I turned away from it is that I felt the longer I was there in a weird way, the less creative I became because I was just recording what other people were saying or answering. And sometimes you had like a round table with five people and one celebrity. And then you had like, you put your recording machine in the middle and then two people would ask questions and the others would just record what these two people were asking. So you could have like a, like a monkey put your recording machine in the middle and it would have been the same. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it, it's, it would have been the same effect or like an AI device just recording and no human being necessary. The high point was reached in the Judd Apatow interview for Netflix with 20 people in the room. And there was a table and there was a really sign saying, um, talent, introduce yourself. <laughs> it was such a low point. And Judd Apatow came in and was like, okay, my name is Judd Apatow. I'm a director. And I was like, oh no, this is really, this is horrible. It was just horrible. Everything started to be horrible. Kind of like when you left situations or when I left situations like that, being in a hotel in San Bernardino for hours with tons of people and Judd Apatow had to introduce himself, although he was the biggest celebrity and the most interesting director. So and I started to feel like my body started to feel exhausted, although it was supposed to be really fun, kind of. And um, I just only really came back to life when, it, when there were situations and in interviews where people didn't say things they were supposed to say. For example, Kevin Spacey was very good at that. But I felt like in me something was absolutely kind of, I'm not going to say falling apart, but I felt that this personal story or issue, whatever you want to call it, was kind of knocking on the door to be resolved. And as you know, when you live in LA, you do like yoga every day, like Kundalini yoga, which is very psychedelic, actually, which nobody told you. And I did a couple of I had a couple of um, sessions that were very intense, but I had no idea that that was already like through the breath work, which also that expression, nobody used that expression, but it was actually breath work. So afterwards I thought, oh, I'm going to yoga and then I'm going to do these interviews. And I, sometimes I was, I felt like high in interviews. And I was like, I just did yoga. So it, it was like, everything was too much. Things came out that you couldn't handle anymore. So I felt like, the more spiritual language one was using, like so-called spiritual language or consciousness language, the less secure I felt. It was a weird combination of like, like an overdose of this California bubble, which I mean, I love California, but it's just you need like some other influences <laughs> once in a while. So, and, and I think that was the moment when I felt like I'm just supposedly should look in, into my psyche or my, my health, but I'm actually moving away from it. And I think that this happened to a lot of people who really try to chase something there that they couldn't even tell what it is. And is that what came out during the LSD experience? Like, did, did you have that no, awareness actually, not while you through? Okay. I mean, it was interesting that right, right after in five minutes in the trip, there was no information about this, let's say, life that I had left behind. It was actually the opposite. It was the life that I had never um, yeah, acknowledged. So there came a lot of scenes in, in the beginning were playing out in, in the scenario like it must have been like a post-war Germany or like roughly a couple of years, like months after the war because the first thing I saw was my um, my, my, my parent my, my mother and my grandparents holding hands in front of a destroyed Germany and saying to me like we have so much problems in our family but they are not yours so it, I got like totally back back in time nothing to do with any kind of Hollywood questioning and um, and also I was pregnant with twins for six hours in the trip I was looking into World War II and my family's problems after the war. Um, I was married to a Jewish husband. I was like, everything was, topics came, came up, like ideas, pictures, feelings that, I mean, obviously I had never experienced ever in like normal therapy. 
And especially the, the pregnancy thing was very interesting because one thing in Los Angeles was like, I always asked myself or started to ask myself why I wouldn't have children, but I could not really, I could never really answer it. So I was never like saying, oh, I never want to have kids and I'm, I'm determined. So, but I also couldn't say why I wouldn't have them. And of course, like so many other people later, I found out because it was of a childhood trauma experience, but it was the first time I ever had like a very fast answer <laughs> to a question, which is like, oh, if you're like pregnant with twins, it seems to mean something to you. So, and that was just um, very different information than any therapy has ever given to me. And in fact, actually, all the talk therapy was always like the opposite of the information I got in a psychedelic experience. So, and that was really significant, right? Right from the beginning. Can you expand on that? How was it the opposite? Well, for example, I give an example. Like I had this therapist, the last therapist that looked like um, the actress. So um, she said to me like, oh yeah, but it can also be really cool to not have children. She, of course, had children and a really nice husband in a house, like, all of this, it was so cool not to have, but she had it. And then she was like, wow, oh, there are women who think it's really cool. And I was like, well, but I'm not, a, I'm not one of these women. I don't think it's cool. So what does it even mean then? And so, so she basically tried to tell me that it's cool to not have that. So, but I wanted, I wanted it to have for a long time, kind of, obviously. So, and then in the trip, I obviously got the answer, well, this is something that means a lot to you. So, and you're not, so you just didn't do it for whatever reason. And then I found out this reason in a couple of other trips, but it was very clear that the topic was very, very important to me. So it's, it's like a total contradiction between these kinds of therapies kind of. Thank you for sharing that. that. That's very personal. So you have this LSD experience. You you write the article um, that gets published in the New York Times for Germany. And were you like, all right, this this is my path? Or were, was it kind of like, um, oh, there seems to be an opportunity here. Why don't I do this while I figure everything else out? Not really. I mean, it was, and I, I'm almost like happy that it wasn't this, there's one trip and then it's like a life-changing thing and you move to a different country and like, it was really incredible to have these info where did this information came from there was something i thought about for the the three months afterwards of course i had a little bit of an integration but not enough but so still it was something that was so um like almost i would be the reality would be i would be the opposite of the person that I thought I would be in the last, I don't know, years. Then it took a while, and it, but I, but even in that while, I never thought, oh, if somebody would have offered me like a another job at Vanity Fair, I would have taken it. But but the the real, let's say, the the most important moment came really after psilocybin. So. Um, like, I think LSD was like, you're driving in a very fast car and you see lots of things and it's super cool. But the emotional thing came with psilocybin. It's really interesting. It started with, I totally, I mean, as you know, one remembers it often very well. So it started with me um, like closing my eyes and I saw a couple of rabbis and they said to me, you know why you live in that street that you live in? because this is where we lived. So, and one of them then took me to, in the trip, he took me to Auschwitz. So we were walking, we, we were just walking, walk and talk, you could say. So he said to me like, well, I mean, we need, I'm just saying what he said. I'm, I'm not making it up. Um, so he, he said to me, well, we need basically people like you to help us to become, to develop a new idea of Judaism again that has nothing to do with the Holocaust anymore. And we help you with your business for that. <laughs> I know it's hard. I mean, I, I can say it on a psychedelic podcast. People won't think I'm crazy. It was a very interesting conversation that really showed me that I had a lot of Jewish friends who were always telling me, well, I, we can help you with this. Or, like, let me know. Like, 
I can introduce you to this or that person. So I never really like had thought of a already like a strong community. I had already in this, let's say, kind of yeah, how you how you want to say this cultural group of people in Germany, which now becomes a little more visible again after the last twenty years, I would say. And so it brought me into a completely new way of thinking about building a business with a community, for example, and not just creating something like an article and sending it somewhere to some editor, but just where's your, where are your people? How can these people help you? How can you support each other mutually? So, and then out of this experience came a really strong community sense which I had not had as a journalist because journalists hate each other and are always super competitive and are not friendly to each other <laughs> and don't help each other. So this is just uh, the way it is. They're very critical. Nobody likes them. <laughs> <really> like, <laughs> so, and then there suddenly there was the opposite of this kind of super competition world. So, and suddenly there was this world of here's a group of people and they might be different, these people, but together they can build something. So, and after this, um, I actually, after two days later, I went to Germany, to, to south of Germany, um, to meet David Bronner for a podcast. And uh, we talked about him being at the first time at his, um, in, his, in the German city called Heilbronn, where his, half of his family came from, who died in the Holocaust. We talked about exactly this topic. So, and then they came on as a sponsor to, to, for the podcast two, two months later. So it was a very interesting journey after this to create, uh, create also a whole new idea around business. So, and after this, I was like, okay, this is, this is where I would like to be in this kind of energy and not like kind of, um, being super competitive 24 hours and burned out and just lying to get a better story and stuff. So then, and then after this, I was really, I didn't want to go back. Being hyper competitive to get a story from an asshole like Tom Cruise. I, I can see how one is definitely more appealing than the other. And then <laughs> when you put it that way. Well, I mean, in his case, I mean, it's kind of, you would be even like threatened by Scientology. So, which that's, is not a, that's true, which is actually true. I should clarify. Are you, are you Jewish? Uh, by background, or does just Jewish themes show up in in your experiences themes. quite a bit? But I mean, okay. it's still something I cannot really tell. I still have to do this um, Me Twenty Three thing, but I just know that um, my parents almost moved to Israel and worked in a kibbutz. And when they announced to do that, I was like, "Oh God, this is like my <laughs> my dream." <laughs> I don't know why. I didn't even know why. So I just wanted to go, but then we didn't go and it's, I don't know, still, still not really resolved the topic. Well, again, thank you for, for sharing those personal um, details. So y you get this feedback of, oh, you should, you should do something. You should do more work in um, kind of reporting or communicating around psychedelics. Uh, at what point was the new health club born and what was the inspiration for the name and what was your vision for it? Or was it more of a let's see what happens and if it goes somewhere it goes somewhere and if it doesn't that's okay too no no it was very i mean the the name came actually we had an event in october 2019 like a little talk you could say with uh, christian angermeyer so we had a we invited a couple of people it turned out 40 people came to this talk we thought okay we have like a half an hour conversation and then like a drinks or something and it was a three-hour conversation People were nonstop asking questions. So the, the need for information and, and questions was huge. And so we called it like the New Health Society. And then I was like, oh, society is always so, it's so heavy kind of. And then I was like, oh, club, like you want to, everybody wants to be in a club. <laughs> so, and then we just called it the New Health Club. And uh, sent out emails, so would you be interested in something like this again? And then we got, again, like a huge feedback. And then, of course, COVID came. But the, the idea for the podcast also, and to have this specific 
kind of addressing people um, who were actually super interested in this was like I found it was there was either like a communication or a few podcasts around that were extremely spiritual, which I kind of took a step away from after living in California where, because I felt that for some people it makes them even feel worse because they can't really say what that means if you're, let's say, have this, this bumper sticker on your um, on your mirror in the morning, um, be conscious, so like, the, like this constant vocabulary, vocabulary of being conscious. So. And uh, and the other thing at the same time, the other communication or sometimes even podcasts were very medical. So and that was also something that people, most people couldn't not really relate to. Also, it, although it might have been interesting, but it wasn't just their world. So and and I felt right from the beginning there was a huge need to kind of address to almost like create a new language around psychedelics or like conversations about psychedelics a lot of these conversations and questions actually became then very um yeah very thorough and, and deep because people started to talk about their personal experiences like i think one of the first podcasts because of dr Bronner's was rick dublin and then he talked about his experiences with Dan Groff in, in Esalen and how they did ketamine and how they saw Hitler. And I was like, what? Like, how can he even tell me this? <laughs> but it was so, there was so much energy coming out of these, like being really open about things and also about the mistakes they had made maybe in their company building or in their kind of journey to where they are now so and i think out of this developed um yeah how could how could you even describe this like like a modern language that people feel comfortable to be addressed in and also are able to ask questions that are not like oh that's a really dumb question so so there were no dumb questions actually i think that was the the secret maybe a secret sauce yeah, I, I can see that being relevant, especially for people who are just starting to explore. There's like there's a nomenclature, there's a culture, there's a whole bunch of stuff around psychedelics. It's as you point out, either very medical or very spiritual, and then that alienates a lot of people, or maybe not alienates, yeah, but excludes yeah. a lot of people. So yeah. trying to normalize that conversation, I think, is is critical. So you started with the podcast and how are things going now? Uh, tell us about what's going on with the new health club and, and your vision for it. Yeah. So, I mean, then, especially since the podcast, even like, especially of course, in the time of the lockdown, this is when it started that a lot of people started to really get in touch and say like, where, where can I even go to do this? Where is it? Okay. What should I pay attention to? And um, so this was the first step that we kind of saw there was a need for, for people to really have information and maybe even recommendations <laughs> like we did. So, but then I think the, the latest development is a little bit that you, you can feel that people, or let's say future customers or people who are starting to be interested in this for many different reasons, that it's a really good way to address people more based on, let's say, um, a, the context that they're in and why they would like to look in this. For example, a good, I mean, the, the sim most simple example that already exists is partly like a leadership retreat or a women's retreat. But even that now is a little bit like becoming more specific because women is like, you know what? So is it like for women who maybe have experienced some sexual trauma? Is it for women who are looking into a new phase of their life, like kind of after midlife? So I think things starting to become now a little bit more customized. And one of the great things that we're just working on is with um, Yuri Blokin from the from Homecoming. It's also I think they're also in Toronto, and. So he's the one of the founders of the Ukrainian Psychedelic Association. And so I think they're looking into, in the long term, to implement psychedelic-assisted therapy right into the 
government or in healthcare once the war is hopefully over soon. So we actually looking into creating a, a specific retreat together with him for Ukrainians who had to or want to leave their country. I mean, there's still a lot of people in the Ukraine, but people who are outside the country but are suffering from their, I mean, either from the war trauma in, in the first couple of months they were there or their family is still there. So and so they would have the chance already to go to, to a retreat and look into this. Or, for example, we had a couple of, um, in Germany, a couple of Iranian women approaching us and saying like, well, our family is in Iran, but we have no idea what's going on with them. So, but we're losing our shit here. And although we are in Germany, although we are not actually in the country, but we are so affected by this incredible situation that um, we would like to look into psychedelic therapy or like experience to kind of deal with that. So kind of topics like that are becoming interesting in terms of creating content around this, that people actually even are able to know, oh, there's even a chance for me that I could look into this if I'm suffering from this. And the Iranian thing is, of course, also interesting because there's also a whole generation of people who has the, even if they haven't experienced it by themselves, but their parents have have left Iran in 1979. So the whole revolution thing is kind of an epigenetic situation that is coming back now to in, into their consciousness with the current situation. So all of these kind of new, let's say, contexts that are emerging in the last years, I would say, this is what we kind of trying to take on in terms of podcast content, but also then connecting it to an actual retreat. So, and that's something we're just looking into how this could look like as a structure. So, because I really think in the end, you really want to create something like that you actually, yeah, that you really can offer and not just like talking about it all the time, like how it has to happen and when it has to happen. So, because you, you can do it already if you put things together. So. Cool. So, so beyond the podcast, you're now kind of organizing retreats around specific themes, whether it's, you know, survivors of Ukraine or survivors of Iran or any other kind of very maybe niche um, themes, which I think is fantastic. I think it's really important. There's, there's a lot of talk and I think it's important in the psychedelic space about, you know, your natural healing intelligence and all that kind of stuff and, and going into these experience and letting what comes up, come up which is great, but I do think there's probably currently underserved role for kind of guided, constructive, targeted conversations, and especially with shared experiences. I think it's really powerful and, and really beautiful, and, and maybe you should take it down to Israel and do it on a kibbutz, because clearly something in your genetics well. is calling you to go down there, right? Um, <laughs> now, maybe have we open like a psychedelic kibbutz, who knows? <laughs> Hey, now you're thinking. Now you're thinking. You're gonna be I'm, there. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I, I will be there kibbutzing away. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But what about you? I mean, do you think about this a lot? Like, do you, in your experiences, I mean, you are Jewish, right? So, in your experiences, is this like a, a theme? Like, and uh, probably is, of course, but how does this play out in your experiences? Being Jewish? Yeah. 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 Still, still to come out. Um, thank you for asking. It's never been about specifically being Jewish, but I think there's a lot of cultural traits um, that have come up for me and continue to come up. You know, particularly around my grandfather. My grandfather was extremely wealthy business owner. You know, had his, the whole world before him, kind of thing, and turned into a crut, curmudgeonly, miserly old man. And you know, I think a lot of those themes and, and the things he struggled with probably are culturally identified, you know, in terms of a lot of Jewish culture aspects, but I've never specifically teased it out being like, oh, this is a Jewish thing. It's more like, that's my grandfather thing, or that's my dad thing, or that's my mom thing. But I think if you went through a lot of Jewish families, you'd hear similar kind of themes percolating up. So yeah, that's kind of my perspective. Um so far in my work with psychedelics, what I found is simply 
the group experience to be the most important part. It didn't necessarily, it wasn't the theme, but the shared nature of the experience and, and the vulnerability and, and the almost imprinting that happens when you're in that state uh, that matters most. And, and so not that it was a Jewish thing or, you know, a women's thing, not that I'd necessarily go to a women's thing, but you know, it's, it's just the shared experience from different perspectives and, and in the moment. Um, but I got a long road ahead, hopefully. Um, so <laughs> more details to come in, in that respect. I do find it interesting though, that, uh, and I'm curious to know your perspectives because, um, for everybody out there, uh, if you remember the show, Everybody Loves Raymond, even though I hated the show, I love the title. And I feel like in the psychedelic space, we live in a world where everyone loves Anne because Anne is everywhere and Anne is embraced everywhere in the space. Everywhere I go, you're there um, and beyond, uh, which is wonderful. And so I think you get like a... Well, like ICPR, you're, you're at a whole bunch of conferences <laughs> okay. that I've never heard of. So, uh, although I have heard of ICPR. Okay. And so I think you get a... I think you have a very unique perspective because you're coming at it. You are now a business person, but you're never going to give up that lens of being a journalist and just being observant about what happens. And so I guess my first question is, how do you see things evolving differently in the psychedelic space in Europe versus North America? I find it very interesting, at least on a cultural level, that Germany is a hotbed for the psychedelic movement. You know, Christian and Lars and Florian and Natai and Compass, a lot of that is born out of Germany, which is a culture that if you said pick any cultural in the world that would be a hotbed for psychedelic activity, German Germany would probably be number three or four on the most unlikely just in terms of gross generalizations, but it doesn't f- seem to fit culturally. So I guess there's two questions in there, which is first is, do you think there's a reason it's happening, happening in Germany in particular? Uh, and secondly, how do you see it evolving differently in Europe versus North America? I mean, that's an interesting question with Germany because I feel like um, the need for, I'm going to just say, like, I think the need for healing is a very big one and it's kind of coming out now. So, because I remember, like, let's say, I mean, obviously, because the whole, because of the whole Nazi time but even before before the nazis there was a very heavy history in germany and i remember like you know the great psychiatrist the hans from hans van wechem like who was also at field trip and he he said to me whenever he had german clients coming in like 90 percent of these clients had at one point in the trip a very heavy and like really strong kind of heaviness around them that they needed to kind of leave behind them. And I think that this is really one of the reasons why Germany has this need and an interest. I mean, it's really like a lot of German people getting in touch and saying like, I want to go to Amsterdam. Where, where, yeah, what should I do? What should I pay attention to? And not a single Italian person so far. <laughs> and then also no French people because they would be really, I'm not saying how I feel, period. So, but Germans really are really looking into this now. So, and, and microdosing is all over Berlin. Like German television has now a, like almost like you feel like every two or three weeks there's something about psychedelics now, ketamine, like it's, it's really out there right now. And I think it must have something to do with that because it's really not enough anymore to just say, oh, um, Auschwitz was liberated on January 27th. Great. So let's move on. So something is kind of coming to the surface. And I know it's still hard to say this or talk about this in, in the way that people would say like, yeah, but that's all kind of bullshit. But just listen to Gabo Mate and you will understand what I'm talking about. Because he can explain it much better than I do. But so the way he talks about it, it, I mean, this is exactly, I think, what is happening right now. How how people start to, especially Germans, start to feel this past in them in one way or the other. And in Europe, second part of your question, how is this different in Europe? I think what's interesting you can see now in, in um, 
very different European countries, like obviously England, let's say it's Europe, England, Germany, Switzerland, the whole like Scandinavian area, like Sweden, Denmark, um, even Oslo has really a very, very interesting and kind of recently accelerating psychedelic scene or like even research scene. So like you mentioned ICPR and this is like the, let's say the European Horizons Conference. It's a rather on, on, the, on the science side or not, not so much on the, let's say, business side. And I mean, I was there the first time also, like, like it was last year. And it's really interesting how every country now kind of starts to, to contribute to this kind of overall general idea that Europe, in Europe, you should be able to have um, psychedelic therapy. And in Germany, it's really interesting also that Let's say a lot of people ask me recently about, like, yeah, I heard about this ketamine, where can I do it? And let's say if you Google ketamine Frankfurt, you would have five doctors. Ketamine Hamburg, five doctors. But nobody really knows about it, So, but it is there. So, And I think one of the things in, in Europe is that, I mean, America has, of course, already like way more media and way more articles about it. But I think Europe is still in need of more communication about it outside of the scientific sector. And coming quickly back to Soho House, because we started in, was it January? We started at the Berlin Soho House like a week, like a monthly um, psychedelic conversation coming from very different angles. Like in January, we had Patrick Cox as a guest who was um, Canadian of Toronto. A really famous shoe designer who got into 5-MeO-DMT and helped himself to not kill himself. I mean, what's what he says. So, And so we had like 100 people coming to this event just wanting to know about the toad, which Patrick knows very well to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, so, uh, and it's really interesting that these live, now that we're coming back to live events or to people really coming physically into a place, you can see that so many people in Europe is, are really, really starting to, for many different reasons, to really want to look into this. And our first event uh, outside of Berlin is uh, on February 28th in Paris, the first event in Paris about psychedelics. In the new kind of the third wave, basically. Do you feel like a, a palpable difference between what's happening in North America and, and Europe? Is it is it still kind of a little bit more hush hush in Europe, um, even though it's percolating up? Is it just more open over to North America, or is it kind of just the same thing? It's not the same thing. I would say in America, it's already like it's kind of done in a way. Like it's just a matter of I don't know, maybe a year or something. And I think in Europe, it's still, people are really still want to know about the research. Like if you say, for example, Charité in Berlin is doing it and in England, Imperial College. So then this is still kind of something that people need to hear at least once, that there's a, a kind of a science background. But the interesting thing, what I observed in, in the last two years in Germany is that Germans are very hands-on with growing their own mushrooms. So, um, and they don't even like, oh, well, I mean, of course, the, always the question is, can I buy it in Amsterdam? So, yeah, but then you would have to take it, you know, outside of Amsterdam, of the Netherlands, which would make it illegal. So there's this new wave of taking your mental health care into your own hands if the state is too slow. And I think there's, there's also a younger generation who will not look into SSRIs anymore if they can try first to do mic uh, do microdosing that's totally my observation that's what's happening <laughs> i hear that you are you know a recognized female voice in 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 the psychedelic space how do you see the sort of gender divide it still feels like a fairly truthfully white male dominated industry and i'm just wondering and i know you've been on a couple of panels recently notionally about women and in and and uh psychedelics yeah. and i'm wondering if you have any perspectives uh, on that well i mean the good thing is i'm used to being in these 
conferences with 20 guys talking a long time. <laughs> if you worked at a magazine or a newspaper, that was the go-to situation. And probably this is different now, I mean, hopefully. But, I mean, it's kind of an interesting question because, of course, you want to be on a podcast like Women and Psychedelics, and there's also a great community aspect to it. Like, I also don't want to focus too much on this because I would like to talk about psychedelics and not about women in psychedelics, which is totally fine if somebody does it. But I mean, it's just that I'm more interested in molecules than in questions of feminism sometimes. And I would like to have the freedom not to only look into the female topics, the so-called whatever that is, nobody really can say it sometimes even. But what I find very interesting is that, and that's something I'm really more and more interested in, is that the perception of the female body is like changing a lot in, in the way that scientists start to look into that substances or treatments are different in a female body than in a male body. So, which is also something that was never on the table. So this topic I find super interesting. And it was just in, in the Atlantic was um, an article about from, from a journalist, a female journalist writing like how her gynecologist was always telling her like weird stuff about her body. And she suddenly started to realize, oh my God, this really impacted me for so long. Something like that. And I think that Goop has a lot, I mean, I know a lot of people are not in favor of Gwyneth Paltrow, but if you look back on it, this is specifically this idea has been really launched at Goop. And it came really to me often because of their articles or podcasts that there was actually way more to it than just going to a doctor and everybody would be treated in the same way. So, but no, but women had have obviously not the same the same body like men, but they were treated like that. And out of this came a couple of traumatizing experiences. And also in terms of like sexual abuse and what, what this has actually to yeah, I mean how the perception of this has to change if somebody maybe goes through this or a woman goes through this with the support of psychedelic therapy and finds out okay she has that experience. And then who is her sexuality after she has looked into her trauma? So this is something that's becoming super interesting for me from a perspective of a woman. But I think this whole thing like, um, so in Germany, you always have this, okay, if you're a female founder, this is only the only thing you're going to ever talk about for the rest of your life, about being a female founder. So, but you also want to talk about psychedelics. So. It's kind of sometimes a little bit of a weird situation to be in, but I have to say I feel the best if I don't have to talk about being a female founder, podcaster, da 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 da. So that's when I feel best, actually, to be honest. I'm obviously not in a woman's shoes, although I could wear pumps to work, I suppose. Um, but I can totally, I can totally resonate that with that, which is you just want to be treated on the on the level. Um, but there's also an em emphasis right now in, in trying to recalibrate, I guess, gender roles and particularly in business and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I can appreciate the complexity around it. Um, I mean, I think it's also maybe a generational thing because I think like journalism is also not a very female kind of business. And like the, the big journalist names are hardly ever female, like this, like Christiane Anampur, people like her, that's super rare that somebody's that famous. It's mostly men. So, but um, I mean, oh, yeah, and it's true. I mean, I don't come from a generation where you necessarily had a lot of time to think about these things. You just had to be faster. <laughs> like we said earlier, meaner, <laughs> more competitive. Yeah. It's not always something bad. There were moments where it actually was also great. So I'm not saying, oh, this is always, but it's kind of a very difficult, oh, let's say it's not such an easy topic as we think it sometimes is. That, that's what I mean. That's fair. I take that point. As you were talking about 
you know, being a, a woman in psychedelics, you said you'd rather focus on the compounds. Um, and I find that that choice of word interesting because in my mind, the word compound immediately puts it into a clinical kind of context. But there's a whole cultural context about what's happening right now. And the whole conversation, at least in the business of psychedelics, is still very much grounded in the medical. Like People are afraid to talk about the fact that there may be a cultural component to this. I'm wondering what your perspective is on that. Do, do you mean like, um, like how, how it's the best thing to be perceived or like? I mean more that in addition to all the excitement about treating treatment-resistant depression and postpartum depression and all that kind of stuff in psychedelics, there's a lot of people doing psychedelics, you know, recreationally or at least intentionally, but not with like a, a medical purview to it. And and I I personally believe that, you know, just like medical cannabis was the impetus for the cannabis industry, recreational or at least intentional use cannabis is a much bigger deal and will be for the foreseeable future because that's just where it is. And I kind of feel like the the cultural, the the people microdosing, the people going to underground guides is going to be a much more impactful uh, effect on our society and our, our world than the excitement around treating mental health conditions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And my feeling is always that, or my observation is, once people have had a couple of experiences in a very safe setting with a guide, they kind of are a little more self-conscious to maybe also look into other, maybe like more exper experimental or experiential experiences, like, I mean, Burning Man, for example. And um, I have to say, like, I think it was at the Miami uh, conference, there, there was a party and um, we were a couple of people and, and we, we took like a little dose of something. And I was always super scared to do that back then before I had addressed my traumatizing elements let's say and it was for me it was a very specific night because I was just really almost like redefining my idea around going out together as a group in in, in a nightlife situation or in a celebration you could say that was not no longer connected to people being super drunk or aggressive or like something weird has happened but just really to, to develop a whole new idea around the music and also around like just being there as a group and as a, yeah, again, like a community. And, and it was not obviously in a medical context or in a strict <laughs> context. <laughs> and that night was like, I, I keep thinking about it many times because I was like, something has been redefined for me at this night, in this night. And I mean, I had like, for a long time, I mean, going out in Berlin meant like most people would be on cocaine and, and alcohol and it was everything was over the top. And like the week after, you couldn't call anybody because people were super depressed because they had done so much cocaine. So it was always like, it was always horrible. It was kind of, let's say, destructive. It was nothing ever great came out of this, but divorces and addictions. So, and, um, so, but this night was very different, but it, it still was a nightlife situation. And I think I, I was able to, to enjoy this with this group, this, this small dose, because I had already had a couple of safe experiences and I knew, um, okay, so this is roughly how this will feel, maybe a little different. And I think like, I'm pretty sure there will be a point when, People have looked into these things and just maybe are more open to have, I mean, let's say, and I remember like writing this story in 2016 about the new luxury cannabis industry for the German New York Times <laughs> also. And um, it was interesting that the, the competition of all of these luxury cannabis companies was not other cannabis companies, but it was the glass of wine that they were competing with. And so, and I think it's a similar thing that let's say you have um, a birthday or there was even this story in, in the British newspaper on the microdosing wedding. So it's just instead of alcohol, people 
will maybe look will start to look into other substances in a very small dose, but not just to go super crazy, but just to maybe enhance their community aspect or their belonging or something. So I think this is very realistic to me that this will happen. Yeah, I agree. On the note of cannabis, uh, you recently tweeted that uh, you had your first cannabis retreat uh, at Dimensions, which is in Muskoka in Ontario. Describe how a cannabis retreat is different than um, uh, a psychedelic retreat beyond, actually, well, I won't make the stereotypical Doritos joke here. I'll keep that to myself. The what? What, what joke? The, stere- the stereotypical Doritos and, and, and junk food kind of munchies joke. Oh, oh, the, oh, the munchie thing. Okay. No, I didn't. No, I mean, it was very interesting because I was never, I'm not really a big cannabis person. And just also maybe because out of fear and I think, but I was never really kind of, I had, didn't have a lot of experiences and edibles I couldn't eat. I just, it took me three days to, to get back to normal. So I kind of stayed away from it for a while, for a long time. And, um, but this experience was very interesting for, for two reasons, because like, first of all, I never had a ceremony with cannabis. And it was, of course, like a more softer, like not like a hitting on your head, full on psilocybin trip or 5-MeO trip. So, and it was just like three hours of a, I mean, of a psychedelic experience, but not strong. And I thought like, wow, one thing is great about this. The, the, the one thing is great or two things are great. The first thing is that I can see that people who are wanting to look into psychedelics could actually have this experience and just have a little bit of a like tipping their toe into the water moment where they feel, oh, this is how this could roughly be like. But also, we, and, um, and that in, in my case, that was something that I also didn't expect. So and, and in July last year, I had a very high dose of psilocybin in, in the study context of the Maryland University study for psychedelic leadership. And so, and I was still processing a lot of things and it was, a rough, the, the experience was good for me, but afterwards I had a rough two months, I would say. And then I went into this cannabis retreat and I felt it was a very interesting, very soft way of kind of, let's say, enhancing my integration with topics that had come up in this really big trip, completely unexpected. And the day after, after the cannabis thing, there was like a day of like Reiki sessions and more kind of body work, but kind of soft actually. And, and then I had this one Reiki session and in this session, although it wasn't in the trip, but in the session, I had a lot of anxiety coming out that was kind of evaporating my body suddenly. And it's almost like this, somebody has to take the trash out kind of moment. But I was like, wow, this is not happening in the trip. But afterwards, after my body has been able to release some things. And so, and, and I also learned there how much the storage of trauma in your body is actually still very much there. Although you have done a very high dose of psilocybin, there's still points in your body where it's like, what? where you feel something what's gonna it's gonna come out in a strange way it was a really interesting experience also because it wasn't so strong it was just like a like a gentle integration support almost so or if you would never have done it you would say okay wow this is yeah okay next time if this is stronger i kind of know what it could be so because, I mean, as you know, like a lot of people, when they do psilocybin the first time, I mean, it is a very strong experience. And most people have never had that experience. So this, this was, um, it was really unexpected. But um, and the main takeaway was really how this somatic kind of integration is a very, very supportive thing for, for once you enter your, your journey, your bigger journey. Yeah, that's one of the things that I had a, a little bit of a hard time wrapping my head around is the somatic aspect of it. It seemed too too woo woo to me, but it's real. Yeah, like know, when know, you experience but, it, it's real. Yeah, I mean, it's if somebody would tell me, I mean, and I know what you mean. You could say like, oh yeah, okay, then you went into nature, and but <laughs> the experience was, I was really like in the middle of this Reiki thing. 
I had a very ancestral moment with my two grandfathers, like very real. And they said to me like, well, so they were both in a war. They were both working in a mine afterwards because that's the only job that was there. So they had really hard lives and lives with a lot of anxiety around them. And then they said to me like, well, we were in the war and we had anxiety and then we went into this work and then we had another way, another sort of anxiety. But you shouldn't have this. You should not exist. You should live. That's what they told me. And then I had this, I really had this moment, like I was super anxious for like two minutes and then it went away. So, and it was, I was not while I was on psychedelics. It was just the day after. That's, uh, I think, a, a beautiful story to end on. Um, so I do have uh, one and a half questions remaining, which is uh, if people want to check out the, the New Health Club, how do they do so? And who has been the most interesting guest on the New Health Club? If you're going to point to one episode where people would start other than yours truly, clearly, um, who, which episode would you point to? I want to say Gabo Mate because... I mean, it is just, to me, it is the most important person in this whole world of looking into not only psychedelics, but also how trauma works. And yeah, it is the most important episode, I think. And it was the one, the episode I was waiting for almost a year to do, because as you know, he's very busy. Then it was the day when my camera broke. <laughs> so he could, I could see him, but he couldn't see me which was okay. maybe good because I was super nervous, but it was really like, um, and a lot, and most people really said to me, well, after listening to this episode where he explained how trauma actually shows in people's lives without being like, you know, extremely like visible, but how it actually, how we can imagine it actually, how it will look like. So, and, and I think the feedback to this episode was really, really strong. So, but, but, uh, but I, before we go, I would like to know who's, who is for you one of the most influential people, maybe not necessarily with, with people with companies, but more people who have like a, like the metas, the meta topic who, who define this, that kind of, I, I would be interested. Who do you like? I would say the person on the podcast who has hit the most chords or struck the most chords with me and, and really challenged my thinking was, was Jamie wheel, uh, the author of stealing oh, yeah, fire yeah, okay. and yeah, uh, recapture yeah. the rapture. He, I mean, I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not a dummy either. And I was struggling to keep up with his thoughts, his reasoning, his me rationale. Too. And I was like, so <laughs> fascinating, but it was so powerful. And I think he's onto something. I think, you know, he has some He's, he's right on a lot of things. And I love how he, he kind of sums it up and puts it in a nice bow tie about here's how, you know, you hit ecstatic states. Here's how you think about rebuilding communities and, and all of this kind of stuff. So that was definitely one of the, th that that's really driven a lot of my thinking and, and piqued my curiosity quite a bit. Yeah. It's, um, and he said he had COVID while we did the podcast. I was like, this is impossible. <laughs> Like you can, yeah. if you've got brain fog right now Jesus <laughs> no but I mean I find it I mean of course I was very like I mean oh god he's coming on a podcast and I was really I mean he's really like you say he's really something and I really I really admire him but it's also something I learned in journalism that I kind of sometimes am more in awe of people who really try to actually build something even if it's not going to work out or it's going to be super difficult. So I think this is the real thing that people actually get kind of into the dirt and try to figure things out. So, um, and as much as I enjoy like great, you know, thinkers, and of course I, I really like stealing fire. Just, I think I read it many times, but it's also important to to have people like like Rick Doblin who say that well we did that mistake we did this mistake, but he still will be in Berlin at a dinner that we we hosted for him and like at four a.m. he will go to the Holocaust kind of Jewish um, area and and smoke pot and connect to his ancestors. So and to me this is something that is. It's like to me, it's the George Clooney of psychedelics, to be honest. 
<laughs> if we want to come back to our narrative. So, um, because it's like, this is exactly what I find fascinating. If people really keep going, or Amanda Fielding, who, by the way, turns 80 today, as we speak, not far from me here in London. So, and um, I think what she's done in all these years when people were like, oh, this crazy person from Oxford. And so this is something that that's what I really admire. If people really, really know, okay, it might take, I mean, in their case, 30, 40 years until something like this is, is happening, what's happening now. But I think we need both also, like people like Jamie Wheel and people like Rick Dublin. So, and Amanda, of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. No, Rick, Rick and Amanda are special human beings. I'm, I'm starting a campaign to get Rick uh, as the time person of the year. Maybe next year, may may have to take another year, but it's it's going to be monumental. Um, and he's such a spirit, special character, and he's so just Rick. You know, you, you get what you get, uh, and uh, he's completely unapologetic about it until he's wrong, and then he's completely apologetic about it, and he's just, just a real human being. I think this is the the kind of energy that will bring everything forward also, I think. I agree with you. So, And that is a perfect note to end on. So, Anne. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for making your time. Thank you for staying up late in the UK. I guess it's not that late yet. Um, it's 9.30 now in the UK. So it's okay. And thank you for accommodating all of the reschedules. Um, I'm glad we finally pulled this together. It's been really nice to be able to reciprocate the favor to have you on field tripping. Um, I'm sorry that all of our ambitions for doing cool things in the Netherlands didn't quite pan out, at least yet. Um, but one day, uh, I'm, and I'm sure, I'm sure we'll keep crossing paths.